Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today we're beginning a new series called Renew Us. We're going to be in the book of Judges. Uh, We're going to talk through that. Today there's going to be some teaching and some preaching, but some of you are here because you're wanting renewal. You're wanting spiritual renewal. You're wanting renewal in your marriage. You're wanting uh, just a reconnection with God. So uh, I want to say welcome and thank you, and hopefully I'll get to meet you after the service at one of our our First Steps gatherings over here in the corner. But let me pray for us before we jump into the scriptures this morning and uh, just see what the Lord wants to do. Father, thank you so much just for the opportunity to be gathered together as a church family. God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would speak through me. Uh, you may want to say different stuff than what you said in the 9 a.m. service. I pray that you'd make that clear to me and, and guide and direct, and, and you may want to say uh, the same thing. So just do what you want to do, because your Holy Spirit needs to speak into individual lives. There are people here that have lost folks recently, and I pray that you'd help them in their grief process. And there are people here that are having babies, and I pray that you'd help them in their, their celebration. And there are folks that are struggling in their marriage, and there are people that just got married, and they're so excited. And God, your Holy Spirit needs to speak supernaturally through my words into all those individual situations. I pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had that moment where you know something's wrong? You might not have any idea about the solution, but you know there's a problem. Maybe you bought a new TV. There was a you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever day you decided to buy it. There was some incredible deal on a TV, and you got it home, and you thought you'd save a few more dollars, and you'd install it yourself. Why hire the mounting company? You have YouTube, and you're handy, right? And so you go put a nail in the wall, and then water starts shooting out. And you're like, but I'm not a plumber. Things are not as they should be at that moment. Or maybe, um, maybe you are coming back to church, it's been a couple years, and you've been to a lot of Christmas parties, and so you went to put those pants on you hadn't worn since the last time you were at church, and yeah, you know, who shrunk those pants while you were out doing other things in life? Things are not as they should be. I was at my house the other day, things seem to just keep breaking right now, we're in one of those, those phases, and I went out of our, we have a screen and porch on the back deck, and I opened the door to the screen and porch, and it didn't close. <laughs> which now we keep having birds fly into our screen and porch. And I told my wife, hey, this is awesome. That means our family's so great. Even the birds want to come hang out with us. She's not entertained, and that's probably how I'll spend um, my time after the service today. <clears throat> but she knows things are not as they should be. And sometimes you just wake up, and you're getting older, and your body hurts, and things are not as they should be. And sometimes a sporting event doesn't go the way that you want it to because the ref or the coach or if you had just been out there, hmm Things are just not always like they're supposed to be. Did anybody see the football game on Monday night this week? You see that? That stopped. It didn't get finished. First time I've ever seen that happen. And uh, I was just from my perspective, those of you who don't know, there was a gentleman that had um, cardiac arrest during the game. They were performing CPR on him on the field. I wasn't watching the game. And my daughter, 11-year-old daughter, was staying the night at a friend's house, and she texted me, I don't know what time it was, 10, 11 o'clock at night, and she said, Dad, are you watching the game? And I was like, who is this? Like, this cannot be. My 11-year-old daughter does gymnastics. She loves everything, girl, hair, things that smell good. Like, I'm like, I have never received this text before, so I wrote her back. I was like, Gracie, what game? She wrote back, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, <clears throat> there was a game on. And so I go turn on ESPN, and the analyst is just overtaken with emotions. He's like, I don't, we're not prepared for this. He just kept saying that over and over. We're not prepared for this. And I'm like, what happened? What had happened, if you watch it, there was a 24-year-old young man 
obviously in peak physical condition, making a routine tackle, Damar Hamlin, and he gets back up after the tackle, and then he just collapses. His heart stopped. They're performing CPR on him. And I'm watching this analyst, and he just keeps saying, we're not prepared for this. We talked about how are the Bills going to do, and what about the playoffs, and how does this game impact the standings? And he goes, we didn't prepare for this. And then he said, and this really got me, he goes, sometimes you hear these young men say, I'd give my life for this game. And then he said, we may have just seen that. And then he keeps going, we're not prepared for this. What he's saying, but he didn't say, things are not as they should be. And you don't have to be a social scientist to figure out you can look out at the world and it doesn't really matter what your political persuasion is. You can be on the right or the left or the middle or the man, I wish they'd just stop talking. All those avenues. And you, maybe you don't care about masks. Maybe you're like, just whatever you want to do. Maybe you've had 9,000 boosters and you wish everybody would wear a mask. Wherever you're at. The fact that we've been through a pandemic for three years, things are not as they should be. When kids are being killed, whether we're talking about in the womb or out of the womb, things are not as they should be. When natural disaster strikes and we see a hurricane and people's lives are thrown upside down, you know things are not as they should be. But in this series, we want to get more personal. There are people in our church that are married, so everybody on the outside thinks everything's as they should be, but they live like roommates. Things are not as they should be. There are people that you love Jesus, but your kids don't, and they're grown, and you don't know what to do with that. Things are not as they should be. And so we're not just talking about the country or the world or the church. I mean, think about how messed up the church in America is. Don't even get me started on that and preach a whole sermon on that. You can go to a church where there's a pastor who like rails against homosexuality and then is like dating a male prostitute and things are not as they should be. Or do you think of the congregation? We just want religious good. We'd rather have comedy hour and some lights and smoke than God's power. Things are not as they should be. What do we do? And all of that, God shows us in the book of Judges. We need renewal, but we don't need a new diet, and we don't need, that might be true too. We don't just need tactics in our finances and in our relationships. We need more than that. And so we're talking about that. And so we're calling this renew us, talking about us individually, us as a church, us in our own homes. We're not really talking about, but you're going to see a ton of parallel of our country. Maybe it could overflow from us in our homes and the church out into our country, into the world. But let's start right here, okay? So if you're interested in real renewal, this is going to be a great series for you. We're in the book of Judges. Uh, it's towards the beginning of the Old Testament. If you always stop your annual reading plan at Leviticus, you won't know it's in the Bible. It's a little bit past that. It's uh, right after the book of Joshua. Uh, we're going to look at Judges chapter 1. Most of our time is actually going to be just in verse 1. This isn't a verse-by-verse -verse series, uh, or we'd be in the book of Judges forever. Um, but we're going to do some chunks here. And today is really laying some foundation. And so we're going to do some teaching that's going to lay some foundation for understanding the book of Judges. The book of Judges, it's not popular, not just because of its location, but because of its content. And it's got an interesting title, Judges. First of all, that's weird for us because nobody in here is a judge like we would think of a judge. And we can get into all the technical Hebrew, because the book was originally written in Hebrew, of how it's really strange that we called it that. The first five books are named after the beginning verses of the books. Genesis, the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God. And so you get to Joshua, it's like, well, he's the main guy. Why is this called Judges? 
a title I would suggest we think about, not that we're going to rename this book, and the title and the verses and the chapters, that's all been added later. That's not God's. I'm not trying to say the message of God's word. But a better title might be Book of Deliverers because what we have here are stories of people that deliver God's people out of terrible situations because of their own doing when they turn and cry out to him. A church way that you could call this book is Book of Saviors. Deliverer is a, a non-churchy way of talking about Savior. Rescuers, uh, it's the same idea because they're not judicial in the sense of they're not political. Uh, they're not making legal decisions. These are military leaders. In this book, there's blood. There's a lot of blood. And so we're going to talk about some of that. There's some difficult stuff and that's why a lot of people don't go to it. This is the book that... If you're afraid of sending your kids off to some college where the professor's going to make them question their faith, this is where he's teaching from. The atheistic professor that wants you to ask either really hard questions or abandon your faith, it's coming from right here. We're going to talk about that. I'm not going to just skim over that. But <clears throat> you're going to have to study some on your own because we only have so much time. So the Book of Deliverers, uh, not popular. There's some popular characters. Samson, probably remember him if you went to church as a kid. Uh, Deborah, Gideon, and you're throwing your fleece out because somebody taught you the Bible like this. Here's these characters, and we're going to learn things about their character, and we should emulate things from their character. That's not at all God's intention of how this book is supposed to go. In fact, the judges, deliverers, they're part of the problem. They're not picked because of their moral excellence. They're not picked because of something you're supposed to emulate. Samson, for real? Like, have you read about that guy? Like, he's a philanderer. Um, he really rejects the calling. He has. He's like running from the calling. He's better off dead than he is alive. Like, if you look at the, his story, Gideon, yeah, that wasn't good, the resistance, but God's gracious. And so what we see is it's not about the characters in the book. It's that the weaknesses in the characters of the book point us to God's character through this book. And so that's what we're supposed to be seeing is who is God? Because that's the key to the path to renewal. And I remember when I first became a Christian, 18 years old, went to this church in Michigan, didn't know many people. And I had no idea how much the senior saints of that church impacted me. You know, they weren't going whitewater rafting with the youth group, you know, they get gray hair and tattered Bibles. But when I look back and think about stuff that I remember, I remember a lot of times those older saints would say stuff like this. Oh yeah, I listened to this sermon five or six years ago and I just jotted these notes. It was preached by whatever pastor and, and I needed that today. So, here's what might happen for some of you going through this book is you learn some truths, but they might not apply right now. You will need them at some point. And so I want to encourage you right now, just if, you, if you've got a paper Bible or however you're supposed to do it on an iPad, <laughs> I don't even know how to do that. Uh, whatever you write, go to the top where it says judges and just write this. There's always a path to renewal. There's always a path to renewal. No matter how far you've gone, what you've done, said, thought, where you've been, for you individually, there's always a path to renewal. Every church, there's a path to renewal. Every country, there's a path to renewal. There's always a path to renewal. And so look and see what we have here in the book of Judges. There's a theme that happens, and so I'm gonna read you a few verses before we get to verse one um, in Judges. In Judges chapter 17 and verse six, we get the context of what's happening here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So this is a unique time. 
in the history of Israel. Uh, We've got God calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You're going to be my people. There's going to be a land, a seed, a blessing. He starts to multiply those people, but they don't get the land. And then they go into bondage, Egyptian bondage. They're 400 years there. Then the book of Exodus, God leads them out of that bondage. They're supposed to go into the promised land, but because of their fear, they don't go. But they've always got a leader, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Moses is dead. Joshua is now dead. They don't have a king. They're asking for a king, and that's wrong because God's supposed to be their king. But look what happens when there's no godly leadership, when there's no vision. So in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And then in Judges chapter 18, verse 1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel... Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it's the last verse in our version of the book of Judges. Uh, The book of Ruth used to be a part of the book of Judges. It says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what happens without godly leadership is we do what's right in our own eyes. This is just a general truth. Go to a book that teaches general truths. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Hmm. Here's the reality. None of us walk around thinking we're wrong about life. (laughs) But many of us walk around thinking we know what's best for our lives. And God weighs our hearts. And that's why this old book from a long time ago that has some really tough stuff in it speaks right into our lives today. It's not just because there's so much parallel between what's happening in our country and what was happening then. But simple outline for today, ABC. Uh, A is going to be acknowledge your current crisis. B, begin a new path. C, come home. You don't have to get all that. Just know that A, B, C is the outline. Judges chapter 1 verse 1 says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Oh, that's good. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Well, why are you fighting the Canaanites and who in the world is Joshua? What we see here is the initial crisis. So, first point, acknowledge your not our, not their, your current crisis. You've got to be asking yourself some questions as we read through this. And really, just the first part of verse 1 shows us the crisis. After the death of Joshua, okay, so their leader's dead. What we see in the history of Israel is there's a cycle. That when they have a godly leader, they follow God. Whether it's a king later in the Old Testament, whether it was earlier, now that Joshua, he was a godly leader, the people weren't necessarily. But as a whole, they were, moving, they were doing what God wanted them to do. And they mostly experience success. But he's gone. So now there's a crisis. And we already know because I read you some verses from the end of the book, what that ends up leading to is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is an interesting phrase because many of us think that an idol is what sits above General Sow's chicken when you're going along the buffet. And you're like, I probably need, I'll get the sweet and sour today. I'm a Christian. No, no. Here's what idolatry is, and you might want to write this down for like the whole Bible when you read it, is it's any time we put anything, because it could be good or bad, so it might be drugs, pornography, or it might be your family, ministry, any time we put anything in the place of God that's not God. So stuff that we can use the word drives our life, it can motivate, it's our purpose. Money is not evil, 
oh, but Timothy, doesn't the Bible say money's the root of all? No, it says it's the root of many kinds of evils. But that's because of our hearts. If we put it in the wrong place in our lives, your family's not evil, but when it starts to drive and control everything you do, fear's not even a bad thing. It's the beginning of wisdom, but when you're afraid of people and everything out there, then you fear people. Here's the big three in America. Sex, power, fame. By fame, I don't just mean you're a movie star or an influencer. I mean, you're living your life based on other people's opinions. Whether that's your mom and dad or your kids or your spouse or somebody you're trying to impress, it doesn't matter who the person is or the people and the likes you get, whatever. But it's money, sex, fame. But we have a whole bunch of other ones too. Food, clothes, you pick them. It's anything created that's in the place of the creator. But a bigger problem is this. When we do it, we think it's not that big of a deal and God's cool with it. So there's our view of it and we think it's like you made some New Year's resolutions and you broke them. Oops, let's start over. And so we treat God like that. No big deal. I mean, I sinned. I made a mistake and people make mistakes all the time, right? Like we all make mistakes. I I read a story this week of a guy who was in a country where if you stole stuff, it was a capital crime. You would be killed for that. He was arrested for theft, found guilty after his trial, was sentenced to death, but while he was being held in a dungeon-like prison, he cut a deal with the guard that was standing outside of his cell. He said, if you get me out of here, I'll show you where the money that I stole is at. We'll split it. And they concocted this plan. It's a kind of intricate plan where they would fake the death of the prisoner, and then that guard would be the guy that would bury him, and then he'd come back and dig him back up later, and they'd go split the money. (laughs) All right, so the plan was actually going well. They faked his death. People thought he was really dead. They put him in a casket, only they were trying to save money, so they put him in a casket with another body? Hmm? Yeah, that's not a win, by the way. Looking for a W out here. And, um, but when they put the casket in the ground, they started putting dirt on the casket. He thought, this is actually working. Like, this is going to work. He got curious, and he pulled the cloth over the guy next to him off. It was the guard. Up. Oh. Didn't plan that. (laughs) But you kind of, you didn't technically dig your own grave, but you kind of put yourself there. That's what we're going to find happens with our idolatry. That's what happens to Israel. That's what happens in the New Testament. God's wrath, Romans chapter 1. You want sexual immorality? Okay, have all you want. It's going to get worse than you think, and then you're going to be in bondage to it. You want to disobey your parents? Okay. You want to not be merciful? Okay. And that's what God does in Judges. And here's the cycle. They pick a false god, fill in the blank. It doesn't really matter which one. There's different names in the Old Testament and we all have our own. The Bible says we've all done it. And then they go running for a while until the pain of their decisions gets so bad that they cry out in desperation to God and then God sends a deliverer, judge. He rescues them And as long as they follow the leader that he's put in place, things are going well. But eventually, in every generation, it gets a little bit worse, and the leash gets a little bit longer, and it gets a little bit darker. But we're going to see the ultimate problem today, and it's this. They have lives that are associated with God, but not in submission to him. They cry out to him. Verse 1 seems amazing. Hey, we don't have a leader. Let's turn to God. That's the right answer. 
But it's real interesting if you read the end of the book of Joshua. Because if you want to understand the book of Judges, what you really need to do is this week, before you come back next week, Lord willing, come back next week. I don't offend you too much. I'll just kind of get a little offensive today. And so what we'll do is you come back with this knowledge of all the stories in Joshua. That's the context. And so if you read Joshua chapter 1, it starts the exact same way as Judges chapter 1. The death of Joshua. We just read that. Judges 1-1. Moses is dead. In other words, there's a new era. Who's Joshua? What's happening? And so that's what we're asking our question here. Joshua's dead, and they're crying out to God. So what's the problem here? What's happening here? They got a significant problem. Their problem is they, with their mouths, will acknowledge Yahweh, the one true God. Their leaders will do that. They will do that. They can quote verses. But when you look at their lives, they're idol worshipers. So at the end of Joshua, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. And then the people go, we are too. And Joshua goes, are you sure? It's an interesting leadership tactic. I read it as a leader and I'm like, shouldn't he be kind of encouraging? Like they're saying they want to follow God. You're a spiritual leader. Shouldn't you be like, all right, let's go. But he's like, no, you're not capable. (laughs) And he's right. I mean, on our own, none of us are capable. And then he's like, you guys are going to sin and and God's not going to forgive you. I'm like, whoa. And he goes, God will consume you. And they're like, no, we're in. We're with God. And he goes, then put away your false gods. Now, here's where Joshua was at in life. It's really fun. Uh, Because if you've ever had a grandpa who just says whatever he wants to say, you know what I'm talking about. You got that? Anybody had that relative? You're like, ah, it's grandpa, whatever. No, here's the deal. He doesn't care what you think anymore. He's going to die and he knows it. So he doesn't care. Joshua, he cares about the people. He doesn't care what they think. And so he's going, I know you guys and you're idol worshipers and you do realize if you say you're following God and worship idols, that's even worse. Hold up. Now we're in. And he says, you're witnesses against yourselves. They're going, all right, we're in. And then we get to chapter one, verse one, and it seems like they're in, but here's the problem. They've got association with God without submission to God. We see that through the Bible. Judas was associated with God. Peter was submitted to God. They both betrayed him. Is God the problem in the different response? Nope. You can can start picking people. Cain and Abel. Yep. One associated with God. The other one submitted to God. Pharisees. Oh, they're associated with God. But do you know there was a prostitute who went to a Pharisee's house and started kissing Jesus' feet and she was submitted to God. Hmm. Sometimes we're not good at telling whose heart's really right with God. But you know your own heart, right? And so the key is you've got to acknowledge, if there's idolatry in your life, acknowledge your current crisis. And then what? Begin a new path. Which is what it appears they're doing here, is beginning a new path. But we'll see really quickly, it's actually not what they're doing because... We see disobedience right away. And so what happens is God ends up telling us how he views their sin. We think it's just a mistake. We think it's just not that big of a deal. Listen to what Judges chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 says. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them or rescued or delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Which is interesting because those who plundered them is real interesting when we get to this. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they... They made a mistake. They thought they knew better. Nope, here's what God says. And many of you get offended when I use it. I'm only gonna read it in the Bible, all right? 
They hoard after other gods. Some of your Bibles say prostituted after other gods and bowed down to them. And so when God looks at our unfaithfulness and when we look at our unfaithfulness, we don't always see the same thing. We see a mistake. No, you make a mistake when you text and it auto-corrects the word and you still hit send. That's, oops, that's a mistake. You don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse and go, oh, whoops, how did that happen? Okay? So the way that God sees your spiritual unfaithfulness, even if it's good stuff, education, clothes, ministry, your family, when those things are the driving force in your life, he sees you committing adultery on him, whoring yourself after false gods. And so acknowledge and then begin the new path. There's always a path to renewal. And it appears that these guys are on the right path. Because in chapter 1, in verse 1, after he had died, there was no king. They cry out. But then verse 2, oh. Verse 2, God gives them a call. And then Judah doesn't, well, it's debatable. It's certainly clear by the end of the chapter they're not obeying because they're supposed to drive out all the Canaanites out of the promised land. God's given them a promise. So they're going to get this land, land, seed, blessing, Genesis chapter 12. The problem is the land is occupied. Hmm. Have you seen Love It or List It? Because they've got, they've got to make a decision. Are we going to stay wandering in the wilderness? Ah, there's not enough bathrooms. <laughs> Kitchen's not big enough. Hmm. They want to list it. All right. But the new option needs a renovation too because it's full of Canaanites. Mm. Okay. Canaanites are not termites, parasites, Amorites, like all these different ites that are in there <clears throat> in the Bible. Um, they're people. And so here's a, here's a moment in this where I would love to preach to you. Preaching is, I would just talk to you about the problem of partial obedience and partial obedience in our own lives. And I'm, I'm exalting God's character to you so that you see who he is and he transforms you. That'd be preaching. But in order to get to those moments, sometimes we have to do teaching. And there needs to be some teaching here because this is a moment where this is why a lot of people don't read the book of Judges. And this is why the atheistic professor pulls it out in college. Because this moment brings a lot of questions. Is this ethnic cleansing that God is commanding here? Kill all the Canaanites? Is this imperialism? Go and take their, there's already people living in the land. Why are you saying that these other people should live in the land? And then you get people like Richard Dawkins who writes in the God Delusion that basically God's a monster. He's a professional at what he doesn't believe in. He's an atheist. You make a career on what you don't believe. Okay. Christopher Hitchens, he's a journalist, so maybe it's a little different. He's critical of everything if you start reading his stuff, but he says that God is vindictive and impulsive. Are they right? And some Christians, what you want to do is go, I just believe, okay, and don't read Judges. And what ends up happening is some Christians don't even read the Old Testament, and they're like, well, I believe in the God of the New Testament, and we treat God like once he got Jesus on the scene, kind of chilled out a little bit. God's just, I mean, he's... He's kind of angry in the Old Testament, but then he, he matures, like he kind of calms down. And so I'll take the New Testament God, not the Old Testament. That's not an option if you read the Bible, just so you know. 
So I'm gonna give you a few nuggets of information. We're gonna give some more resources uh, for you to read. If you're the person that just thinks to yourself, la, 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 just tell me Jesus is good. I don't wanna hear about all this. Uh, you need to do better than that in your thinking because someday somebody's gonna ask you a real question. Some people are just hiding their immorality and they know this is a smoke screen and you don't have to talk about that. Other people have real questions about, you want me to believe in this God? Ah, who is he? What's he like? And you need to have at least more than just, I just believe, I don't know, my pastor talked about it, email him. Nope, don't do that. Hey, your friend emailed me. I think you should have coffee with them. Here's some resources. That's how that'll go, just so you know. <clears throat> so, what are some thoughts or questions for you to have? First of all, I wanna say this. Um, throughout all of history of Christianity, of following God, there's a verse in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, it's quoted more than one time. But it's in the Old and New Testament that says this, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we take comfort in that. That's crazy, right? If he's a vindictive monster. But what some of us do is we rewrite who God is, which is what they were doing in Judges. And we just say, well, no, he's just really not. I'm just going to talk about his love. I don't want to talk about the wrath and justice. And we act like that's just in the Old Testament. So I want to read a few verses to you today. How about this one? Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. This is the New Testament. For because of these things, those empty words, the people are telling you stuff that's not true, that you like to hear about God, that is not true about God, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon you. Hmm. It's the wrath of the New Testament. Well, Revelation says this. The people, it's going to be so bad at the end, calling on the mountains and rocks, they're going to say this, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne. Who's that? From the wrath of the lamb. Oh, I think we know who that is. I just like Jesus because he's like a hippie, peace and love. Or one time I preached a sermon we were in John about how we remake Jesus in our own image and I had a, a young person, I don't know exactly what generation, but they're a teenager and they came up to me and they said, you know, you left my Jesus out. He wears a man bun and he works at a coffee shop and it's all free trade coffee. And, and I was like, you know that making your own Jesus was the problem in that sermon, right? <laughs> but yeah. So Jesus is the one that people are crying out because of his wrath. Here's words from Jesus in the red letters, if you have that kind of Bible, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 through 46. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That sounds like wrath. So you're going to send people to where the devil and angels are going to spend eternity? Eternal fire? For I was hungry. Oh, it's not about what you said. Oh, but the political party I want, they quote verses or they got this agenda. They don't see the principle. And yeah, I mean, they don't obey, but they're still, they're more like it. Their lips didn't really matter. It says, for I was hungry. You gave me no food, I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? I don't remember that day. Or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick. Verse 45, then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's a God of wrath. 
in the New Testament. In fact, it could be argued he's a God of mercy in the Old Testament when you start seeing uh, slow to anger, abounding in love all over the place and how long he waits for people to repent. But in the New Testament, woof. But we make this, we can't just make up your own version. And so the first thing I just want you to take is you can't, you can't make him up, but you, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second thing is, when somebody tells you that the how can you worship a God who the Bible says he's going and ethnically cleansing people and he's going and he's, he's this is telling people just take land from folks and that's why there's holy wars, that's why there's crusades and that's why I can't believe. Okay, ask them this question. What verse are you talking about? Because let's see, rather than just say the Bible says something, let's go, what does it really say? And here's another, we don't have time for this. I'm going to give you some verses right now, those of you who write notes. These will be in some of the resources we give later. But go read these verses, Exodus 23, 20 through 33. This is throughout the whole Pentateuch, first five books. 34, 11 through 16. Numbers, 33, 50 through 56. Deuteronomy, 7, 1 through 5, 16 through 26. 20, 1 through 20. They, those verses, when they talk about what we're reading about here, of go take the land from the Canaanites, what you'll see is, what's emphasized is not an extermination of those people, but an eviction of them. You leave, you, you're supposed to leave, but wait, that's still the, these people. Hold up, let's make sure we read the Bible. Who are these people? Because a lot of times the people that are skeptical paint them as if they're these innocent folks, okay? Um, bestiality, incest, child sacrifices, they're a cult. And they're not being ethnically cleansed. We know that's true because you have, you want an example of God's mercy in this? I think this actually teaches mercy, not wrath. You want mercy in this? The mercy is, how about Rahab? She's a Canaanite, but she repents. Their issue is not their ethnicity. Their issue is their moral depravity. And God's telling the Israelites, you can't live amongst these people because they, you think you'll influence them, they're gonna influence you. So you're going to them and saying, the God, you remember the one who did that whole Red Sea thing? He told us this is where we're supposed to live and um, you need to leave. And they resist, of course, but they could repent if they wanted to. Some people argue, that's what happens in Joshua chapter 9, 10, and 11 with the Gibeonites. It's debatable, it's messy, the whole argument and the whole conversation's nuanced. But we do know that eventually God incorporates them into his people and shows his mercy in fact, Rahab ends up in the hall of faith. She's a lying prostitute. It's not about her morality. It's not about her ethnicity. It's about God's character. She repents and turns to him. There's no one righteous. Oh, but Rahab, uh, you know how when there's going to be people that are going to come and go, but what, hey, what do you mean I didn't see you in prison, Jesus? Didn't I do all these things for you and cast out demons? And Jesus is going to depart from me. I never knew you. Yeah, Rahab's in because the righteous who have his righteousness because they've repented and turned to him. Israel's broken. It's not because they're awesome God picked them. No, he picked them because of who he is by his grace and his mercy. And they're supposed to be a light to all these other nations. This nation, the Canaanites, they're so wicked. He's saying, yeah, I'm gonna, I am going to put my judgment on these people. That is true. And there are verses, so don't miss this. There are verses where he does tell them, kill everything that breathes. Deuteronomy, you can look at this one then too. If they're all, it's just in Deuteronomy. It's just in this legal covenant section of Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse 20 and 24 
in chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, but what you will find there is this is not indiscriminate killing of just whoever you want that's in your way. This is not um, some kind of a you know, bunch of babies in a hospital and these people are all, in, these are not innocent people. And so when you have those conversations with people, realize they're complicated conversations, but there's more to it than just, this is not, this is certainly not imperialism. It's certainly not ethnic cleansing. In fact, they're told not to take any of their stuff. Read Aiken if you don't believe that. But they are supposed to kick them all the way out of the land. So there's some tough stuff here. And here's the real reason why we don't like this. Because we don't want to think about God's judgment. And his judgment is real. And there, here's why I say that this is all grace. God is giving them their judgment day while they're still alive. That means, because there's always a road to renewal, they have a chance to repent. Peace with God is always an option until it's not. And even though they don't repent, in God's wiping them out, that's mercy to everybody else who sees it. Judgment day is coming. It will happen. And a lot of us like to, la, 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 I just don't want to think about that. We see it in this book. So this book, <clears throat> I will challenge you, is a love story, but not a romance. This book is an action movie. There's a lot of blood. It's kind of like Equalizer meets Saving Private Ryan meets 300. Spartans, what is your profession? Ooh, yeah, that's right. But it's a love story. Oh, it's not a romance. That Maybe next year we're going to do Song of Solomon. There's romance. And oh, by the way, don't bring the kids. <laughs> this, it's action movie, but it's also one more movie, Groundhog's Day. You know that one? Same thing over and over again. These first chapters are the same thing over and over again. It gets worse every time. There's a different judge. It's always the same reality. You got to go to the path of renewal. Why don't you just stay on that path? Because we think that temporary sexual pleasure is better than eternal exhilaration of holiness. We think that temporary perceived control is better than submission to God's sovereignty. We think when there's no king, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. God judges the heart. And what we think always leads us to destruction. But there's always a path to renewal. And so what they do is they think that they can do just association without submission and they do better than their, their ancestors and they could argue, but don't you see the nation? By the way, they're an incredibly divided nation because they lack central leadership. They lack godly leadership. There is no real vision. There's 12 tribes. Sometimes we talk about Israel like they're all together. No, nope, they're all in their own little tribes. They all do what's right in their own eyes. And every once in a while they come back together, but there's a super spreader event. The virus of their disobedience starts in verse 2. Verse 1, they cry out, hey, God, we don't have a leader. What do we do? That's great. You started on the path to renewal. Then, verse 2, the Lord said to Judah, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So God's already accomplished this. You just need to walk in it. Okay. Verse 3, oh, man, he messes up. We didn't get very far, did we? Now, this is debatable. Some people disagree and don't think this is disobedience, but here's what it says. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I'll likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them. This sounds like great military strategy because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. 
problem is it's not what God said to do. He didn't say Judah and Simeon, go. He said, Judah, go. Partial obedience is a problem. And it continues to be a problem in this chapter. I'll read you what Tim Keller says about this. Um, I think that he's right on here. But like I said, there are people that disagree, so you don't have to agree on this point. It doesn't change overall what's happening here. But he says uh, about this passage that Judah fails to fully to obey. They go, but they do not go alone. <laughs> Their discipleship is halfway. <laughs> because he turns and he says to his brother, you come with me. Now, talking, by the way, about the Canaanites and uh, whether this is right or not, I think Keller's got another great quote. We're going to skim through the rest of chapter one here. But he says this when you're talking about verses four through seven. He says almost, a, uh, uh, no, no, not that quote. Uh, next one, Randy. It says, Judges uh, one, four through seven. He says, nevertheless, having gone up as he directed, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And so God gave success. They rout the inhabitants and capture and kill Adonai Bezek. That's the, uh, the Lord Bezek. He's ruling. Uh, he's a Canaanite guy. Who recognizes, here's the key, the rightness of this judgment on him. And he says this. God has paid me back for what I did to them. Verse 7. So Keller goes on to say, this is an incredible observation. It's notable that while many 21st century readers have many qualms about Israel's conduct in Canaan, this defeated Canaanite did not. God's judgment throughout history is to give people over to the consequences of the life they have chosen. Then thank you, Keller, for giving an Old Testament and a New Testament verse. Adonai Bezek, he says, it appears, accepts this concept. That God's judgment is right. And on judgment day, no one's going to be able to argue that God is wrong. And so I would just challenge you with this thought. Are you open-minded enough to consider that when you think about God, an eternal, infinite being who's always existed, always been around, and you're, I don't know, 25, you look 25, you might be 45, I don't know. Maybe his view of justice is more developed than yours. That if you come to the conclusion after evaluating who he is, I wouldn't do it that way. That maybe one of you is wrong and it's not him. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there is a cosmic trial taking place. He's not the one on trial. There is a judge in this book. It's him. There's a judge in our lives and it ain't you. It's him. So maybe, maybe, just think possibly if somebody needs to change, if you come to a conclusion where God's not in line with your morality, that maybe his morality is more developed than yours. Well, goodness, maybe his goodness, mercy, wrath, maybe they're all. When you disagree that we need to stop changing him and let him start changing us. So what happens here is I believe the disobedience starts in verse two. You can debate that it does or not, but it clearly happens later in the chapter because what happens is uh, Benjamin doesn't drive everybody out. Notice the language is not kill everybody, exterminate everybody, but it says does not drive everybody out. But the people, verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out all the Jebusites. And then you go to verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out all the inhabitants of Bethesheen and its villages. And you keep going through and when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. What? You became what you hated? Hmm. 
Interesting, because we're going to see what God's wrath does to us. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer. And verse 30, Zebulun did not, not here in, in North Carolina, Zebulun, but different Zebulun, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. And Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of all these transformer names, Echo and Kitron and what in the world. What you see there is partial obedience. And then, in case you do still think that Jesus is a barista at Sola or wherever, the angel of the Lord comes, chapter 2, that's Jesus. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And remember, he sees that as adultery. What is this you have done? Catch your spouse in adultery? What are you doing? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. You want them to live with you? Okay, this is Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. I'm going to give you what you want. But look what's going to happen. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. You're going to go back into bondage. You're in the promised land. They could argue, hey, but at least we're in the promised land. We're doing better than our grandparents. Hey, we're here. Jesus, why you got to always talk about stuff we're not doing? Why can't we talk about stuff we are doing? Partial obedience. But here's the great news. You can always come home. Last point, come home. Come home. Because verse four, in all the darkness that happens, verse four, it's pretty incredible. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Biblical weeping and repentance because you have biblical guilt. There's biblical guilt and there's non-biblical guilt. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. We don't have time to get into all of it, but there's a, there's a guilt, a grief, a regret. A lot of times we psychologize things like, no, if you have regret, it's not from God. New Testament, second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. No, regret and grief. Problem is we confuse godly with ungodly. Ungodly grief and ungodly regret speak condemnation into your life. Godly grief, godly regret leads to salvation in your life. And so here they've got this grief. They're weeping. And they called the name of that place Bacham. That means place of, they wept so much that the place where they were weeping, they called the place of weeping. That's great. Because you know what they're doing? Acknowledging, we're not victims here. Oh, these wicked Canaanites, if they weren't, we're the reason they're here. Your idolatry, you're not a victim to your idolatry. Acknowledge your crisis. It's your crisis. Begin a new path. Even if you get off in the new path, you can always come home. And what we see in the book of Judges is a lot like a New Testament story that Jesus tells. It's in Luke chapter 15. We oftentimes call it the prodigal son. It's really about the father. What happens in the story is that there's a son and he doesn't want the giver of gifts. He wants the gifts. That's what God calls idolatry. You don't want me, the creator. You want my creation. Okay, go. So what happens is this son goes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance even though you're not dead. I want the gifts. Give me the gifts. And the father says, okay, you can have the gifts. And the father knows what's going to happen. And he takes the gifts and he spends all the gifts. And he, he wastes, his idol is prostitutes. You could fill in the, black, the blank of that with whatever, money, power, drugs, pick your idol. 
His is prostitutes. He ends up in this pig pen eating pods from the pigs, and then he has a repentance moment. The way the New Testament says this is he came to himself. Whoa, there's this what? Acknowledge this is your problem. And then begin a new path, which is what he does. And then you see, you can always come home. Look at what it says. Verse 17 in Luke chapter 15. But when he came to himself, that's the moment of repentance. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger because he left his father. I will arise, going to go a new path, and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. See, he's, sin didn't happen to me. I have sinned against you. I'm acknowledging it. Against heaven before you, I am no longer worthy, humility, to be called your son. That's a great beginning of the path. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Remember that he said that. Verse 20 says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That's the picture of our heavenly father. And he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned, acknowledges, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't get to say, I'll be a servant. Look at what the father does. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. He belongs to the family. Put shoes on his feet. Wouldn't he be living like this? And bring the, he was eating pods from pigs. He says, bring the fat and calf. You're going to have steak. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Sorry, vegetarians. It's in the Bible. And let us eat and celebrate for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You know what this is like? I asked Pastor Bryce to help me uh, with this last illustration here. Do you ever play um, the game Ghosts when you're kids? You follow somebody around? That's all I need you to do, right? Just follow me around, all right? Just wherever I go. So judges, our lives, Luke 15, same story. God gives us a gift. It's an incredible gift. Pick a gift. What is your idol? I'm just kidding. Probably not going to say that in church. What is your spouse's idol? Just kidding. No one causes those problems. What is, what's a good idol? There's no such thing as a good idol. You're Jesus in this illustration. All right. <clears throat> Let's say it's clothes. I want to look good. Or it's your social media or some kind of outward appearance. So you pursue that. And you go after that. You get the best clothes, tailored clothes. You're working out all the time, whatever you do. And then you realize that just there's never enough. It's not fulfilling. But you can always turn back to... There we go. Hey, hug. The text says kiss. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All analogies break down somewhere. <laughs> or maybe you're like the prodigal son, and you're like, it's prostitutes. It's sex. But, but you're Raleigh, so you can do it clean, right? I'll just look, but don't tell you. It's pornography. It's sexual immorality. I'm constantly in my mind cheating on my spouse, but I don't do it, so it's good, right? Until it's not. And so instead of the exhilaration of holiness, you're pursuing temporary pleasure. But everybody around you, you're associated with God. You're just not submitted to him. And then you feel regret and guilt. But is it godly guilt that leads to condemnation or that leads to new life, salvation? Or is it worldly guilt that you stay in your condemnation? You decide that. There's always a path back home, but you've got to turn to him. Hey, like the father, open arms, he's there to embrace you. You turn back to him. 
Or maybe it's your ministry or your family. It's like my family. This world is so dark. Yeah, Pastor Scott's right. Like everybody does what's right in their own eyes. I'm just going to huddle them up over here. And out of fear, I'm going to keep everybody here. And you hold on to it so tight. You squeeze the life out of them and you. And you realize it's not working. And then you go, what do I do now? Okay, I'll tell you. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate that. There's always a path home. Acknowledge your current crisis. Begin a new path and come home. If you're watching online, maybe you tuned in for a couple minutes and you've drifted from God. Hebrews chapter three says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, come home. You're in this room, people might look around at you, you're successful at work and your family's great and everybody thinks you're on fire for Jesus, but you know what's going on in your heart. God spoke to your heart. Say, I'm tired of just association. I want submission and maybe you submit one of those idols to him right now. Whether it's sex, control, fear, ministry, I don't know. But if he speaks to your heart, come home. You can always come home. After the first service, I saw a guy who hadn't been to church in 10 years. And the first time I met him, he had seen somebody else who was an atheist who had come to Christ at our church and shared testimony in a, a baptismal, and when I saw him, at first I didn't recognize him, I was like, hey, and I said his name, and we gave each other a big hug, like Bryce and I just did, and he said, I'm home. I need to come home, come home. Father, we come before you today, and we just ask that you would draw sinners back to you. None of us are righteous because of our own behavior. We need your righteousness, and so will you forgive us? If there's anybody here who needs salvation, you feel the guilt, you feel the weight of your sin, you don't know what to do. I said the outline today was acknowledge your crisis and begin a new path and come home. There's another ABC, it's admit your sin, believe Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and confess him as Lord. You do that. Admit your sin to him. Believe when he died on the cross, he died for you. Confess him as Lord of your life. Surrender your life to him. You've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Nobody has any idea what's going on in your heart right now. God does. Everyone does this right in their own eyes. He weighs the heart. He knows the heart. God, search us and know us and show us if there's any offensive way in us. Maybe some of the mess in our life that we're going, why are you allowing this? You sent it to get our attention like you do with the Israelites. And we have us turn to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.